Bible prophecy is often misunderstood and misapplied, which leaves many people confused or fearful. But when the Bible is studied in its proper context, prophecy becomes clear and understandable. There is no one we can trust more than Jesus, and His words will speak specifically to us as we study them in their simplicity. Welcome to Jesus on Prophecy. Can we find a hope? that goes beyond the grave. And the question that we're going to explore tonight is what really happens when you die? There's a lot of speculation in the world today about what happens in the afterlife. Some people believe that you're going to come back reincarnated in another life form. Uh, some people think that you will live another different life in a different body, in a different uh, setting of circumstances. But you know, there's so many different varieties of what people think happen when you die and what the afterlife could be like. And so the question of what really happens at death has a solid biblical answer. Now, I know that even Christians and non-Christians look at this subject of death differently. And some religions believe, like I said, in reincarnation. Others believe that death is the end, nothing more beyond the grave. But if you ask most Christians what happens when you die, they'll say, well, a person has a soul that goes to heaven or at hell at death. And others might believe in purgatory, a step in between. And so the question is, are the dead asleep waiting for the resurrection when Jesus comes, or are they in heaven already? So this is a, a question that uh, many people ponder about. And if that soul is in heaven, does the soul have eyes? Can it speak? Does it have a mouth? Does it have ears? If a soul has eyes, mouth, and ears, you can see up in heaven, why does it have to come back for the body? So there are all kinds of confusing questions that people are very perplexed with about this subject of death. What happens when you die? Is the soul immortal? Is there a resurrection? You see, if the soul is immortal, then it could go either to heaven or hell immediately after death. And if the soul is immortal, then the dead could actually talk to the living. The whole issue of death has to do with the question of immortality. Do we have immortality now? Or will it be given to us at the second coming of Christ? Where can we find the answers? Well, friends... I hope that we allow the Bible to be the basis for all that we believe. Amen? And uh, the motto that we want to go by is, if it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for me. And so the Bible gives us dependable answers to this question, what happens when you die? And it reveals not only what happens when you die, but also how to face death with hope and confidence. And we see that the very first chapter in the book of Revelation introduces us to a glorious person, which is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. And he is dressed in a glowing white robe, Revelation tells us. His eyes are aflame with fire, and Jesus identifies himself in this way. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, he says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of, what? Death. So we see that Jesus is the only one who went to the grave and came out. He is the only one that has the keys to the grave. And, all, and that's the big difference that we need to take note of compared to all the other world religions out there today. Buddha is still in his grave. You know, all these other world-founding religions, uh, leaders, are in the grave. But we see that Jesus is the only one that has overcome death. And we see that any believer who dies and rests in Jesus can look forward to that resurrection. The Bible reveals the truth of the resurrection throughout its pages. It points forward to the second coming of Christ when Jesus comes and the dead are resurrected. 
So tonight we're going to take a look at our first question. Question number one, what does the Bible teach about the idea of the immortal soul? Okay, so we're going to take a look and see, does the Bible endorse this teaching about an immortal soul? Well, to understand this, we're going to go to the book of Genesis, to the creation week, because after all, that's where we were first created. And we're going to see what happens when a person dies. But if we understand uh, what happened at creation, perhaps that can also shed light on what happens when we die. And I believe that we'll find that clue there. So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Page 2 in your Bibles. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and we're going to go ahead, table by table, we're going to read a verse each, and I believe tonight the first table in uh, our order here is table number 3, so Patricia, that's going to be you. If you could read that for us, please. Genesis 2, verse 7, and let's all follow along and be ready to see what this text sheds light on, on this question. Uh, Aha. Uh -huh. Okay, now in the New King James, it says that man became a living being. But in the original King James Version, it says that man became a living soul. Okay, and that is very relevant. Uh, so what we see here, do you see a pattern here? Do you see a mathematical equation emerge from this text? We see that God... He, first of all, he formed man out of what? The dust of the ground, right? His body, his physical being was formed out of the dust. Yes? And then what did God do? He breathed into him the breath of life. And so we see that there's a mathematical equation there. The dust plus the breath, which is his spirit, the spirit of the spirit that animates uh, that that uh, body, is a living soul. Okay, do you see that? So dust plus breath or spirit is a living soul, and so we can also say that the elements of the earth plus the breath equals a living being, right? So we see that a living being, a living soul, means one and the same thing. So it's a living person. Okay? So Adam became a living being, a living person. And so you see, friends, a living soul is a living person. So I don't have a soul. I am a soul. A living creature, a person... Uh, a living creature is a person, and it's a soul, and so are you. So we say that there are many souls in this room, right? We are all a soul. We're, a soul is not what we have. A soul is what we are, based on what we see on the very onset of Genesis chapter 2. So question number two, then, it says, what is this soul? Is it immortal? And can it ever die? And so now we're going to take a look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, page 817 in your Bibles. So we're going to take a look at Ezekiel 18, verse 4, page 817. And we're going to answer this question. What is this soul? And is it immortal? Does it go on to live forever? And Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, page 817, we have table number 4. It's going to read that for us next. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Okay, so what does it say at the very tail end of that verse that Todd just read? It says that the soul who sins shall what? Die. Okay, now that's a very clear statement, isn't it? Does the soul continue to live on, according to the Bible? Yes or no? The soul continues to live on? No, right? Because it says the soul who sinneth shall die. How many, how many souls have sinned? All, right? According to uh, 
Romans 6.23. I'm sorry, Romans 3.23. Uh, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The soul that sins shall die. So we see that all souls are subject to death because all have sinned. Right? And so, another name for soul in the Bible is person or life. Take a look here in Matthew 16, 25 and 26. This is coming from the words of Jesus himself. Look at what Jesus says. He says, For whosoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own what? Soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So very clearly Jesus is using the words soul and life interchangeably in this text. They're one and the same. Right? So question number three. Who alone is immortal? Okay, so we're going to take a look and let the Bible answer that for us. We're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. That's page 1140. And we're going to take a look at this verse to answer who alone is immortal. 1 Timothy 1, 17, page 1140. And I believe the next table is table 5. And we're going to have someone read that for us, please. Page 1140, 1 Timothy 1, 17. Okay, so this is talking about God. The description of who God is, right? What does it say about God? It says that He is the King Eternal and He is what? Immortal, right? So it says that God is what? Immortal, right? And if you read on, it says He who is the blessed only potentate King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and it says He who alone has immortality. So who has immortality? Who has immortality? God alone, right? Is there anyone else that has immortality? No. Based on this text, only God has immortality. Is that clear? Yes or no? Or do we have to go further into this? (laughs) I think that's very clear, right? And so we see that God alone has immortality. The one that dwells in unapproachable light. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Bible is clear on this matter of immortality. Only God is immortal. Mortal means subject to death. Immortal means imperishable. So the Bible never uses the term immortal soul or immortality of the soul. It's never mentioned like that in the Bible. That term came up elsewhere. Right? So the immortality of the soul doesn't exist in the Bible. That concept of the immortal soul does not exist in the Bible. We see that where it came from was pagan Greek philosophy that taught that the soul is immortal. You see, the Greeks taught that the soul could live separately from the body. They taught that the soul was a distinct entity which had life in and of its own. And the Bible teaches that human beings are an integrated unit, mental, physical, and spiritual, and these components are inseparable. And so the question then is, when do we become immortal? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 through 53 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound. When is the last trumpet sounding? What event does the last trumpet sound? The second coming of Jesus. That's right. So this is talking about that event. At the second coming of Jesus, when the second, last trumpet sounds, what will take place? It says, and the dead will be raised, what? incorruptible and we shall be changed and also if you go further to verse 53 it says and this mortal must put on immortality so friends when do we become immortal at the second coming of Jesus has that event happened yet 
So that means no one is immortal until that event. Is that right? Yes. We see that immortality is given to those who are faithful to God, and God gives them that gift of immortality at His coming, not before. Are you following? Okay? Are you following what the Bible's bringing out so far? So when God created Adam, He placed His breath within him. Not an immortal soul. And we see that in Genesis 2, verse 7, which we read, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. It's very clear that the body plus the breath of life that God gave into Adam, which made Adam a living soul. Right. So now, we're going to go to question number four. Question number four says, what happens when a person dies? What is it that goes back to God? So we see, does the Bible say that the soul goes back to God? Is there anywhere in the Bible that says that the soul goes back to God? No. You're not going to find a text that says that. What goes back to God? Is actually the spirit goes back to God. That's what the original language says. The spirit goes back to God. So we're going to take a look here. We know very clearly, we read in Genesis 2-7 how man was created. Death is the reverse of that. Are you following? Does that make sense? When God created us and we came to life, we came to be, death is the reverse of creation. Right? And so we see... Uh, the, first, the next text that we're going to look at is Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. Page 646, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, page 646. And we're going to have table number 6 read that for us. Okay, so Ecclesiastes 12, 7, page 646. And do we have someone... In table number 6, that could read that for us. Okay, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, page 646. And let's read what this verse has to say. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. Okay. Table number 6, do we have someone ready? Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. Okay, very good. So it says here, this is what's taking place upon death. It says, the dust will return where? To the earth. And the spirit will go where? To God, who gave it, right? And so the body goes back to dust, right, upon death, right? That's why they say dust upon dust, ashes upon ashes, when they talk about someone who has passed away, right? But the spirit goes back to God. So what is that spirit? You know, some people think that that spirit is like a disembodied part of that person that floats up into the air, and then they're floating. You see these cartoons, right? They're floating up into heaven, they're playing a harp, and... You know, their, their spirit is there in heaven, right? That's what they assume the spirit means. But in actuality, the spirit that goes back to God is not something that is conscious. It is the breath or the power of God that, power of God that returns back to God. God has preserved the identity of that person in his mind. And we see that the word spirit, you just need to look at the original language in the Old Testament. And the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach which means simply breath. So we see that, the, that the, the spirit is not this disembodied person. The spirit is simply the breath of God that returns back to him upon death. So we see that the spirit and the soul are two different things. But many people think that they are the same, and that's where the confusion comes from. We see that the spirit and soul are different. And here's why. We see that God forms man out of the dust of the earth. That's his body. And God breathes into, his man, breathes into man his ruach, 
the Hebrew word for spirit or breath. And we see that man opens his eyes and he comes to life and he is now a living soul. And we see that when a person dies, the body goes to the dust, the spirit or breath of life, the power of life goes back to God. And we see that the Bible teaches that the breath and the spirit are the same thing. And let's take a look at an example where this is so. Very clear. In Job chapter 27 verse 3, page 498. Job chapter 27 verse 3, page 498. We're going to read and see one of many verses that actually teaches that the breath and the spirit are one and the same. Okay? So let's take a look at Job 27 verse 3, page 498. And we're on table number seven. So if someone can read that for us, please. Okay, so thank you, Curtis. It says, all the while my breath is in me and what? The Spirit of God is where? In my nostrils. What is that spirit? Does it make sense that there's a spirit living in your nostrils? Does that make sense? No, <laughs> that word spirit is ruach. It means the breath of God is in my nostrils. The breath of God is what's sustaining my life, my being. Every moment of our life is a gift from God, amen? amen. And that breath sustains our life out of His loving mercy towards us. And so it is the breath, the spirit is the breath. It's not some conscious disembodiment of the body that floats into heaven and returns back to God. And let me give you an illustration of how we can better understand this. Maybe I can illustrate it with this light bulb. Now, to get light from this light bulb, I need more than a bulb, yes or no? Yes. So the bulb, let's say, represents the body. Okay? But if I'm going to have illumination, if I'm going to have light, I need power for the light bulb, yes or no? Yes. And so the light bulb alone does not give me light. I need power, correct? So we see that once I switch the light, the switch on, as, as long as it's connected, the power represents God's spirit, you see, or God's breath. So the power comes through the cord into the bulb, and that produces what? Light, illumination. And what happens when you unplug the light? Well, when you unplug the light, the, uh, unplug the power, I should say, there is no more light. Where does the light go? Where does the light go? Ceases to exist. The light ceases to exist, right? And where does the power go when you unplug that cord? The power goes back to the powerhouse, isn't that right? Yes, so when we stop breathing, our heart stops beating, we die. Our breath goes back to God who has sustained our life till that point, right? And so we see since the power to create life is with God, His Spirit, which gave life, returns back to Him. Would that make sense based on what the Bible is telling us? And based on what we know what the true meaning of spirit is, according to the Bible, is simply the breath of God that returns back to him. And so, the body returns to his dust, the spirit returns back to God, which is simply the breath. Right? And so, question number four. Is there any consciousness in death? Are people aware of what's going on as they're lying in their graves or in the afterlife? And let's take a look at what the Bible says in Psalms, chapter 146, verse 4, page 601. The, is there any consciousness in death? Psalms 146, verse 4, page 601. We're on table number 8. And we're going to take a look here to find the answer to this question. Are the dead aware of what's going on? 601, Psalms 146.4. His spirit departs. He returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Aha. Uh -huh. 
So it says that his breath goes forward, his spirit goes forth, or the breath goes forth. He returns to his earth. On that day, his very thoughts, what? Perish with him. Right? So there's no people thinking or knowing or they're cognizant of what's going on around them upon death. Right? And let's take a look at another verse that goes into this further. Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 6. Page 644. Uh, not too far off. But uh, we're going to take a look here uh, and explore. Is there any consciousness in death? Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5 and 6. Page 644. We're on table number 9. Okay. Ah, and read the next text, please. Okay, so very clear. The Bible is telling us that the living, we're all living, know that they will die. Do you know that we'll die someday? Of course we do, right? That's why we try to uh, eat healthy and live right and exercise because we want to sustain our life as long as possible, right? Because we know we're going to die. But the dead, what do they know? They know absolutely nothing, right? Nada, zero, zilch. They don't, they don't know anything, right? But for, so their thoughts, what happened to their thoughts? Is there any thought processes going on while they're dead? No. But look at this. Furthermore, it says, also their love, their hatred, their envy have now perished as well. So in other words, what is that? Love, hatred, envy. It's, that's their feelings, right? So both their thoughts and feelings are flatlined upon death, right? So Hitler is not in his grave saying, I wish I could kill more Jews. He's not feeling that, right? He is... There's no thoughts or feelings taking place in the grave. He is dead, right? So very clearly, there is nothing, no, there's no consciousness in the grave. There's no consciousness uh, when these people have died. And we see question number five. What does the Bible call the conscious state of, unconscious state of the dead? Okay. What does the Bible call the unconscious state of the dead? And we see that all throughout the Bible... Uh, it says, the Bible refers to death as the Bible teaches that death is like a sleep that lasts until Christ's second coming. And in fact, this is so prevalent all throughout the Bible that the Bible writers have declared death as a sleep more than 50 times. All the Bible writers know when you're actually saying the sleep of death, they know it's talking about death, right? That's just a given. And so here are some verses that actually are examples of that. Psalms chapter 13, verse 3, page 519, and we're on table number 10. Psalms 13, verse 3, page 519. Let's take a look at one of these texts that refer to death as a sleep, okay? And this is uh, uh, the psalmist here speaking. Psalms 13, verse 3, page 519. Do we have someone from table number 10 that can read that for us, please? Very good. Thank you, Xavier. So what does he say? Lest I sleep the sleep of? Death. So death and sleep are synonymously described. Right? And this is one of many texts that refer to death as sleep. In the Bible, death is a rest. In the Bible, there is no immortal soul. And we, say, we see very clearly that Jesus more than once... Uh, I, I don't have time to go into this, but more than once he'd refer to death as a sleep. He did that with the, with the story about Jairus' daughter, remember? Um, and, and he says, why are you guys all crying? She's only sleeping. And they ridiculed him, right? You're crazy. How can you say he's sleep? she's sleeping? She's dead. But that's what Jesus meant. And also, if you look at the story of Lazarus, John chapter 11, uh, verse 11, as Jesus was traveling to visit the home of his friends Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, he got the news that Lazarus has become very sick and that he had died. And Jesus waited three days before arriving at Lazarus' home. And while they were on their way, Jesus made this statement to his disciples. He said, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. 
disciples, not knowing what Jesus was really saying, they said, Oh, Lord, if he sleeps, then he will get well. That's good. And not knowing what Jesus was actually saying, Jesus was saying plainly, it says here, However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Right? So we see for Jesus and all the Bible writers, death is but a sleep. Jesus then visited Lazarus' home, and he decided to raise him from the dead as a demonstration of his power. And this would become a powerful testimony of his res resurrection power for all humanity at end time. And so let's take a look at question number six. Upon death, does one go immediately to heaven or hell? Okay, and we're going to continue in the story of Lazarus. John chapter 11, verse 23 is where we're going to go. Page 1039. Page 1039, John 11, 23. If we could go to table 11, could read John 11, uh, verse 23, page 1039. Okay, so let's take a look at what Jesus says as he arrives late to Lazarus, Mary, and Martha's home. What takes place and what does Jesus say upon his arrival and as he encounters Martha? John 11, verse 23, page 1039. We have someone from table 11 to read that for us, please. Twenty-three, yes. That's right. Very good. Thank you. Go ahead. Continue. Okay, so we're going to focus on what Jesus said in the very beginning of that text. Thank you for reading that. Where Jesus says to Martha, what? Your brother will, what? Rise again. Now note the words of Jesus very carefully. I put it on the PowerPoint so that we could pay attention to this. Jesus didn't say to Martha, Martha, good news, praise God. Martha, don't cry because Lazarus' soul is up in heaven. Is that what Jesus said? Not at all. Jesus didn't say that. What did Jesus say? He said, your brother will rise again. That word will is future tense. Yes or no? Future tense. He said, your brother will rise again. He didn't say, your brother is in heaven right now. And so what did Martha believe about, the, about death? What did Martha say? What did she know about what Jesus taught about end time prophecy? We see in verse 24 and verse 25, Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the which day? Last day. And so Martha, did she have a proper understanding of what happens when a person dies and when they will come back to life? Yes, she did. She had the proper understanding. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Martha, who received her direct uh, teaching from Jesus, believed that her brother would be resurrected in the last day when Jesus came again. And so Jesus, of course, as the story goes on, he worked a miracle in raising Lazarus from the dead to demonstrate that he could wipe away every tear from our eyes at funerals too. So Jesus came to that tomb and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus was sleeping, resting in God's love and care. And as Lazarus came out of the grave alive, that was an amazing testimony to the fact that Jesus did indeed have the power to resurrect the dead. Now let's suppose that Jesus came to that grave, and what if many people believe is true? Let's just assume that for a moment. And Lazarus is up in heaven upon his death, okay? Let's just assume that that took place. 
And Jesus would not have gone to that tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. He wouldn't have said that. But instead, it would been more appropriate for him to say, Lazarus, come down from heaven. <laughs> right? And, and, in, and Lazarus, I can imagine him, he's like in heaven, enjoying the bliss and wonders of heaven. Oh, I'm so glad I'm here. And here's, here's Jesus. Lazarus, come down. Oh, no, Lord. I don't want to come down. You've got to be kidding me. I, I just got here. Right? W wouldn't you have said that too if you were Lazarus? Like, I don't want to come back down there. I want to stay up here. But if what people believe is true, if Lazarus, if Lazarus went to heaven, when people assume that people, when you die, when people die, they go straight to heaven, Lazarus, when he came down, people would have asked him, Lazarus, what was it like in heaven? Lazarus could have written a whole book in the Bible about what the wonders of heaven was like, what his experience was like in the few mere moments of heaven. But do we see any account of that? No. Why? Because you see, friends, Lazarus didn't know anything when he was dead. He, he did not have any conscious understanding after his death of what transpired. All he knew was that one day he was on a sickbed and he closed the eyes of, of death and then the next more, moment he hears Jesus' voice and he wakes up and he's in grave clothes. That's all he remembers. Nothing more. Because he was sleeping until the resurrection. But of course Jesus came before that. And just like Jesus said, he was a resurrection that raised him up and Martha believed. You know, it's wonderful to know that God has marked the grave of that husband or wife, that child, that father or mother that has perished. It's encouraging to know that the heartaches of earth that they were so troubled with are over for them, and now they're laid to rest. What can be more reassuring than to know that they are just as they were, cradled in Jesus' arms in a perfect state of bliss and sleep until the resurrection. We see in Job chapter 14, verse 21. Let's take a look here. The Bible's very clear of what happens when a person's in the state of death. Job 14, verse 21, page 490. Let's take a look at this verse and table number 12. We'll read this for us. Job 14, verse 21, page 490. When people are in the grave as Lazarus was. Are they aware of what's going on? Job 14, verse 21, page 490. Let's take a look here. Does someone from table 12 have it? 490, Job 14, verse 21. It's a wrong page. Okay, I'm sorry. So what is the correct page number? <laughs> 489? 488. I was off by two pages. I apologize. Okay, so can we have someone read that for us, please? Verse 21. So I was right? 489? I wasn't wrong. Right, okay. <laughs> All right, so let's have someone read that for us, please. Okay, so we see that this is depicting some people, some sons, that's coming to pay respects to their dead father. And it says that they honor him, they lay low, they bow before him, but is he aware of it? It says that he is not aware of it. He does not see it. Right? I've had people say to me, you know, oh, I love to think of my mother in heaven, and she's looking down on me. But what if you had a husband that abused you? And your mother is up in heaven watching that abuse. Would she be able to enjoy heaven? What if a mother is up in heaven and her child goes astray and he's shooting up drugs into his veins and he's ruining his life? Do mothers in heaven bear all this grief for their children's problems on earth? God is too merciful for that. We see, friends, the Bible is very clear. Death is a state of perfect rest or sleep until the resurrection when Christ wakes you up and He says, now the sorrow is over. When we die, it's a perfect rest. You don't know any passage of time. All the heartache is over. Now all the disappointments of life are ended. And that's why 
The Bible tells us in Psalms 115.17, it says that the dead do not praise the Lord, nor anyone who goes down in silence. So if there were, let's just say that there were saved people that were up in, let's say that there were saved people and they went up to heaven. What would they be doing if they're in heaven? What would they be doing? They would be praising God, right? <laughs> but we see here very clearly on this text, it tells us the dead do not praise God. None of the dead are in heaven yet, right? So we see that if they were in heaven, they would be praising the Lord. But we see that that is not what the Bible teaches. It's amazing. In 1,600 places where the Bible mentions the soul, the Bible never uses the term immortal soul. Never. But throughout the Bible, it describes death as a sleep. The Bible talks about the resurrection, and it talks about the coming of Christ. And I hope you guys come tomorrow night, because we're going to be talking about the two, two resurrections, right? And, uh, and the millennium, and how that comes into play, the thousand years. But uh, we see that the Bible talks about the coming of Christ. It talks about the resurrection. It talks about the graves being open. The Bible is very plain on the subject of death. Very plain. And we see when loved ones died as a believer, their life was hidden in Christ in God. He has preserved their true identity. They sleep. There is no perceived passage of time. They don't know about any of the trials or difficulties their loved ones and friends are experiencing on earth. As Christ comes, he calls, George, come forth. Helen, come forth. And as he calls them up, the graves are open and we are caught up to meet Jesus in the air as we ascend to meet this Christ who died on the cross and now is glorified in his coming. Question number seven. What does the Bible say about communicating with the dead? Is it possible for us to talk to people in, who are dead. Right? So we're going to see what the Bible teaches about that. The Bible teaches, we learned, that death is like a sleep. The believer who dies is as secure as if you were sleeping in the arms of Jesus, resting from heartache and disappointment of earth until that glorious resurrection morning. But spiritualism... And the New Age philosophies also teach that the soul is immortal. And spiritualism teaches that when you die, there is an essence of you that continues to live on, and you can come back and communicate with the living. And do you see why this is a deadly idea? Because the devil can use these false ideas about death to deceive us. You know, the devil is so downright dirty. He knows our close ties that we have with family and loved ones, and he exploits that. You know, he knows that you long for them, you miss them, you're crying, your heart is wrenched because you, you, the, the death has separated you, but he's a, he, he, he makes it seem like you have a possibility to talk to them again, a possibility to converse with them again. Even though they're dead, you can still communicate with them. But if we are Bible-believing Christians, we know that that is completely false. We see, this is what the Bible says. Why would the devil want us to buy into this understanding that we could communicate with the people who are dead, that people who are dead are not really dead, they're still alive and living on? Why would the devil like us to buy that hook, line, and sinker? Because the book of Revelation tells us why. The book of Revelation, chapter 16, verse 14, tells us in page 1185 that he is going to do a great deception upon the earth in these last days, and he is still doing it, friends. He is doing that deception even as we speak, as we're studying here tonight. Revelation 16, verse 14, we see, which table are we on? Table number three again. Okay, so Patricia, you're going to read this for us. And Revelation 16, verse 14, page 1185. Why does the devil want us to believe that dead loved ones are still living on? They're not really dead. 
Revelation 16, verse 14, page 1185. Okay, so we see that, we, that the spirits of devils will seek to do what in the last days? They're going to work what? Miracles. Right? They're going to do signs and wonders that people are going to be enamored with. They're going to say, wow, this is definitely of God, but it's not of God. Just because a supernatural uh, thing takes place does not always mean it's from God. You gotta, all, the, the only conclusion you can make when you see a supernatural sign or wonder take place, the only thing you can conclude is that it's supernatural. Okay? <laughs> You've got to ask, from which source is it coming from? Because the devil can do miracles and signs and wonders. God can do miracles and signs and wonders. You've got to understand, where is it coming from? Where is the source? Right? And we see that today, there are many people who assume that they have this ability to channel what the dead are speaking. And Leviticus chapter 19, verse 31, tells us of who are these people. Page 112. Table number 4. Leviticus 19.31. Page 112. Leviticus 19.31. Here's a warning that the Bible gives us. Give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. Okay, so we see that the mediums have direct contact with what kind of spirits? Familiar spirits. You guys know what familiar spirits are? Familiar spirits are those who come to act like your loved ones. Those that are familiar to you. Right? They come in the guise of your deceased grandmother. Right? And you're so glad to see them, but it's not your grandmother. Based on the Bible, the dead know how much? They know nothing. Can they communicate with us? No. Are their feelings still there for you upon death? No. We looked at all the texts that tell us that emphatically it's no. So who's actually communicating with you? It's the spirits of demons. And if you guys don't remember the story of King Saul, when King Saul, the first king of Israel, when he actually uh, met his demise at the very end, he committed suicide. But if you saw what happened just prior to that, he actually consulted with a witch. And that witch actually uh, summoned up the spirit or the apparition of uh, Samuel, the prophet. But it wasn't really Samuel, the prophet. It was a demon assuming the guise of Samuel, the prophet. And he gave him a very terrible uh, prediction that discouraged them to the point that he committed suicide. So the Bible tells very clearly, don't consult with the, with the occult, with the witchcraft, with these mediums who say, claim that they have uh, ability to, to channel what the dead are saying to you, because that's dangerous. That's something that we should stay away from as Christians. And we see in Job chapter 7, verse 9, here's why the Bible tells us that we shouldn't do this. Page 483, Job 7, verse 9. And we're looking at table number 5. Job 7, verse 9, page 483. And if we could have someone read that for us, please. Job 7, 9, page 483. Okay, so it says here that, okay, hold on, Mary. You're going to read the next text in a second, but I just want to pause here. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave, do they come up? No. They remain there till when? Till the resurrection, till Jesus comes, right? But let's read the next text, verse 10. Aha, uh -huh. so will he ever come back to his house to haunt that house, to do unfinished business and take care of that as a ghost? No, right? There's no such thing as haunted houses. There's no such thing as spirits 
possessing a house and, and um, shaking chains to scare people off, right? We see that there's no such thing as ghosts based on what the Bible tells us because what happens when people die? They know nothing. If there is somebody that is a ghost or an apparition, that has to be only what? The spirit of demons, devils, assuming in the guise of those people, right? The Bible's, this is why the Bible is so awesome. The Bible helps us to pierce through any deception if we would just study it out and take heed to what it says, right? And so, number eight, what about the thief on the cross, right? Now, some people say, you know, what did Jesus mean when he spoke to the thief on the cross and promised, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And that wording seems to imply that Jesus would meet that thief that same day in paradise. Rightly understood, there's no confusion, though. Christ was saying, I promise you today, I make this promise to you today, that you will be with me in paradise. This is what Jesus is really saying. Uh, whether there's a question of interpretation, we examine what is questionable by what is clear. And did Jesus himself go to paradise that day? Let's, just, let's focus on that question, that key question. Did Jesus himself go to paradise that very day? And let's let Jesus answer that question. Let's go. We, we see, you remember when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified on what day? He was crucified on what? Friday. He was laid in the tomb to rest on Sabbath. And he resurrected on the first day, which was Sunday. He resurrected from the dead. Yes or no? Yes. So let me take you to the story of that resurrection account, that resurrection morning. Although Mary came to that tomb and she was looking to see and she thought that Jesus' body was taken and she was crying and weeping and, and there was a man there she thought was a gardener and, and, and she didn't recognize him at first, but when she finally did, she fell down and worshipped at the feet of Jesus. And it's quite a story. In John chapter 20, you can follow along with us. John chapter 20, in fact, I encourage you to look at this because this is something that we really need to pay attention to the detail here. John chapter 20, verse 15 through 17. Right? This is Mary as she encountered Jesus at the tomb. But it was the resurrected Christ. Amen. Jesus conquered death and he rose that resurrection morning. And this is the account in page 1049. John 20, 15 through 17. And table 6 is up. 1049, John 20, 15 through 17. All right. Uh, did it, uh, Ermana, would you mind reading that for us, please? You don't have your glasses? Okay. Uh, let's jump to table seven. Okay, 1049, John 20, 15 through 17. Okay, let's pause right there, Danielle. Thank you. Notice what Jesus said in this verse. What did he say? Do not cling to me, Mary, for I have not what? I have not yet ascended to my Father. Wait a minute. Jesus just said something that is a very big hint here. Did Jesus go straight to heaven on that day where he said to that thief, on this day you'll be with me in paradise? No. Based on this text, Jesus says, I have not yet ascended to my Father. Jesus has not even gone up to heaven yet, right? And let's continue reading, if you would, Daniel. Ah, so when does Jesus ascend to heaven? When? On that day when he encountered Mary, right? He said, I am ascending to my Father. Tell the disciples, I'm going to heaven now. And I'll be back. Yes or no? Is that what the Bible says? Yes. 
So we see, friends, that Jesus himself did not go and ascend on Friday. He, 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 how could Jesus have said to the thief on Friday that he would meet him in paradise that day when Jesus himself didn't even go until Sunday, the first day of the week? He said to Mary, Don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. If we believe that Jesus met the thief in heaven on Friday, it contradicts the entire Bible teaching on death. And second, if Jesus had not yet ascended to his Father on Sunday morning, how could he have told the thief on Friday that they had been in paradise that day? When we encounter an apparent contradiction in the Bible, we immediately, we immediately sense that there's something wrong, but not with the Word of God. But with our limited understanding is where we see that contradiction. How do we know how to interpret this verse? When God says 53 times that death is asleep. When God says 1,600 times that there is no immortal soul. When the Bible says that the living know that they shall die, but the dead know nothing. We know that Christ did not teach that the thief had an immortal soul that would immediately go to heaven upon death. So what did Jesus mean when he said, Today you will be with me in paradise? Jesus was saying, I say unto you today, thief, this day that I am dying on the cross, this day that I am apparently been stripped of my power, this day when men and women are ridiculing me, this day when the blood running down from my face, this day with a crown of thorns on my head, this day that doesn't look like I can save anybody, this day I say to you today, on this day I assure you, you will be with me in paradise. That's what Jesus was saying. He was committing that promise to him on that day. Because we see very clearly he did not ascend to heaven that day until Sunday. And we see, because I'm going to be resurrected from the dead, and I, as I ascend into heaven, your name is written on my hand, thief. As I ascend to heaven, I will ascend, to, I will ascend there with your name on my lips. I will come back for you. That's what Jesus is saying. On resurrection morning, I will come back for you and remember you. Don't worry, I'm making you that promise today. That's what Jesus was really saying. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 through 55 holds a whole great meaning to us today. O oh, death, where is thy sting? O oh, grave, where is thy victory? But, I, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, how many of you here out there have lost a husband or a wife or a loved one by death? Do you know someone that went to the grave, your loved one, and you kneel and put flowers there? The good news is that death has lost its sting. Amen? The good news is death has lost its hold. The good news is that the grave cannot hold us because Jesus Christ went into the grave. He came out of the grave, and our life is hid in Christ and in God. Our identity is solid in Christ. Our name is upon his lips. He, his, he's written pardon on the palms of his hands. And when he comes again, he will say, John, come forth. Helen, come forth. George, come forth. And when Christ comes, he knows your name and he's going to call you by name. And that's what he's telling the thief. I'm going to call you by name when I come the second time. That's what he was saying. What assurance that thief must have had although he was nailed to that cross with no hope. But Jesus spoke hope and assurance that I will remember you and I will call you by name when I come the second time. Question number nine. When will death be forever conquered? We look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, page 1137. Page 1137 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. When will death be forever vanquished, forever conquered? We see in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. One of my favorite verses that has so much in there. Let's read that together. Uh, well, as uh, table number 8, we'll read it out loud for us. We'll follow along. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. Christ will rise first. 
All right, so we see all the Bible points to this one glorious climactic event. Why have Christians down through the ages longed for the second coming of Christ? Why? Because they believe that the coming of Christ, the dead will be resurrected and they would meet their dead loved ones again. We would receive glorious immortal bodies and we would be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. It is what Titus tells us is the blessed hope that we look forward to. It's the hope of all hopes that we will be clothed with immortality, that we'll be reunited with our loved ones that we have lost. And we see that 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17. Sal, if you could read that. Amen. When Jesus comes, friends, streaming down through the sky, the dead are resurrected. They are given immortal bodies. You will see that the baby that you have laid in the grave, you will see that baby again, and you will hold that precious bundle into your arms where you never thought it was possible. And you, that father that died of cancer, you will see again. That mother that you've lost, you can embrace again. That husband, that wife, whoever it is, together we will all be caught up to meet Christ in the sky. Think about the excitement. Think about the thrill that will flow through our bodies. A husband and wife, alive when Christ comes, are caught up to meet Him in the air. Their son ascends with them. Their daughter who died at nine is resurrected and joins them in the air. Oh, it's going to be an exciting reunion. And we see, even in facing death, we can hold the hand of Christ. We can completely trust this Christ who lays our loved ones in the grave. This Christ who holds them close to His breast and lets them rest. This Christ that has our identity in His mind. This Christ who has marked their tomb. This Christ who will resurrect them from the dead. If you've lost a loved one in death, you can say tonight, Precious Lord, take my hand. Precious Lord, give me that peace. Give me that comfort. Give me that security. Precious Lord, help me to know that this loved one as a believer, is safe and secure in your arms. Precious Lord, comfort my heart. Why not accept the great gift of salvation that Jesus offers us tonight so that we can experience that reality of His second coming to be reunited, never to part again with our loved ones ever again from that moment on. Oh, what a blessed event that we could look forward to. It hasn't happened yet, but it will. You know, it's a pity, really, that there are many people out there who dabble in the occult, that dabble in witchcraft as a means to, to talk to their loved ones. They, talk to, they go on seances to talk to their loved ones and say, you know, summon up my grandmother who I miss so much. I want to talk to her. That's, that's very, it's pitiful really because that's not really their loved one. And you know what's interesting? I, talk, I, I saw an interview about this young high school girl who was into witchcrafts. And you know, she, she and they asked, they asked a question to her, why are you into, why are you into this? You know, what, what, what do you get out of being a witch? And she said, because I love the thrill of having power. Having power over people is what I get the thrill out of. Sheer thrill of having power and, and casting charms over people and, and like putting curses on them. And she thought that that was the greatest thing. But how sad that really is because there's a greater power than the second-rate power that she's settling for. There's a greater power where Christ can give us the power to have a new life in Him. Uh, and, and it's the resurrection power that will raise us ultimately all up to be in immortal bodies and to meet the Lord in the air. And that same power, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians, that same power can actually work in us to do a new re-transformation of our hearts. 
The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that can change our lives today, tonight, and forever. All we have to do is say, Lord, I acknowledge that your power is greater than any other power on earth. And I look forward to that power to raise up not only my loved ones, but also to give me that power to overcome in this life. A life of sin. A life of death and suffering. A life where the devil has taken this world hostage, but yet greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. When we realize that, friends, there's no power on earth that can stop us when we have the indwelling Christ in us. And the power of His resurrection power can transform all of you and all of us tonight. And how many of you want to say, Lord, I want a change of heart tonight. I want a new life in you. And I know that only you can give it to me. So that's why I'm asking you in the precious name of Jesus who died on the cross and spilled his blood so that I can ask for that request. How many of you would want to claim that today? Is that your desire? If it is, would you raise your hand and say, Yes, Lord, I claim your power in my life today from now till you come. I will trust no other power on earth but your power. Praise God.